Good morning. Welcome to our Sunday worship service. Thank you for joining us. Today I am pleased to announce that in addition to continuing our online worship services, we are also beginning next Sunday going to be holding a drive-in church service. Uh, and that begins next Sunday, February the 7th, and will be right here at 10.30 a.m. So if you want to physically go to church next Sunday, you can join me right here, or rather out there, and uh, join me. I will be speaking uh, from the top step on the northeast side of the church, right over here. So when you come in, please park on the north parking lot facing towards the church building and tune your radio to 88.3 FM, and that is the frequency that we will be broadcasting in, 88.3 FM. Now, it's also important to note that current health restrictions require that the occupants in each vehicle are to be from the same household and that they must remain in their vehicles for the duration of the service. So we ask that everyone would please abide by that. Now, I've had someone ask me, why start doing this now? Well, I can tell you that it's definitely not because I'm looking forward to preaching outside in the middle of winter. But in all honesty, the, the primary reason that we've decided to start drive-in services now is that after being physically apart for close to three months now, um, it's, it's going on the same length of time of this lockdown as the one in, in spring. After such a long time of being apart, we believe that it's incredibly important that we once again begin providing an opportunity for our church family to begin gathering together again. And the fact remains that uh, Jesus has designed his church to be an assembly, to be an assembly of believers who come together. And so we want to honor what the Lord has, has designed us to be. And, and so if that means for the time being that we are going to share the same parking lot, then that's what we're going to do. So if that interests you, then I invite you to join me right here next Sunday. This will be our maiden voyage. Uh, you get to be the guinea pigs along with me, and we're going to see how this goes. So next Sunday, February 7th at 10.30 a.m. I would now like to uh, give you the invitation for the offering. Um, you can give of your tithes and offerings, uh, of course, through the mail. Mail your checks to Box 969, Clarny, Manitoba, R0K1G0, and make them payable to the Clarny Mennonite Church. Or you can also bring your, your donation in person. There is an offering box located in the church foyer, and you can leave it there. I would now invite you to bow with me, and let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for this opportunity to gather today. We thank you that in all seasons you are our God, you are faithful to us, your children, and it is a privilege to worship you in spirit and in truth. And so again, we ask by the power of your Holy Spirit, though we are in physically separate locations, bind us together by your spirit, by your truth, and in love for one another. We continue to pray, Lord, and look forward to the opportunity to uh, see restrictions lifted and to see uh, the virus uh, fade once again, Lord, and we pray for that day. Help us to remain patient until that day and help us to make the most of other opportunities that we are given along the way. And one of those now, Lord, is the opportunity to come together in a parking lot for a drive-in service. And though it's not something we're familiar with, we pray, Lord, that you would bless it and that it would be a blessing to your children as we gather together. And so we ask, Lord, that you would provide 
Uh, we pray that, that you would work um, in and through it. I ask for myself that it won't be too windy or cold. And uh, Lord, that you will just bless that time in your word as it's broadcast. And now, Father, we uh, pray for those who are struggling during these times. We pray for those, Lord, who are struggling financially, especially those small business owners, restaurant owners who are feeling the brunt of, of many of these restrictions. We pray, Lord, please provide for them and help them to look to you for hope. We pray, Lord, for those who are struggling uh, with mental health, with depression, um, especially because of the lockdown, because of feeling lonely and isolated. And we pray, Lord, would you be a companion to them? And would you be near to them? And we ask, Lord, for those, especially those, Lord, who have not yet placed faith in you, that they would sense your presence and reach out to you and find that you are not far from them. In fact, you are right there ready to help them and to come into their lives. And so we pray, Lord, that you would bring people to yourself, even through these, these difficult and challenging times. We pray, Lord, that we as the church, as believers who know you, Lord, we, we are not immune to feeling these things either. So help us to cast our cares upon you, knowing that you care for us, and that as we bring our prayers and petitions to you, that you will take them from us and guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And so we pray for this peace that surpasses all understanding to guard us, Lord, and to give us what we need uh, to live in these days. Help us to continue even more, Lord, to shine your light of hope into this world that desperately needs it. Help us to show this hope of Jesus that, that helps us, Lord, to overcome fear and to point to others who are living in a, in a land of fear, Lord, that there is hope in you and that they too can experience this freedom. And so, Lord, this morning we pray that your gospel will go out in power. We ask that you would anoint it wherever it goes out, whether from this pulpit or from others, Lord. Bless your word, and, and may it strengthen your children today. Bless the gifts that are given throughout the week and continue to multiply it to the furthering of your kingdom, we pray. And now I would invite all of you to pray with me the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. I would now invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Romans chapter 7. And there we'll read the first 14 verses, beginning in verse 1. Do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to men who know the law, that the law has authority over a man only as long as he lives? For example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. So then, if she marries another man while her husband is still alive, she is called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law and is not an adulteress, even though she marries another man. So, my brothers, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit to God. For when we were controlled by the sinful nature... The sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our bodies so that we bore fruit for death. But now by dying to what once bound us, 
We have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. Indeed, I would not have known what sin was except through the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, do not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of covetous desire. For apart from law, sin is dead. Once I was alive apart from law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me, and through the commandment put me to death. So then the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. But in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it produced death in me through what was good, so that through the commandment sin might become utterly sinful. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. So far the reading of God's word. Now today's sermon I have entitled, How to Struggle with Sin and Lose. How to Struggle with Sin and Lose. In 1886, Robert Louis Stevenson wrote a book called The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. You might have heard of it. Now, the story goes that a medical doctor named Dr. Henry Jekyll developed a potion that made him a completely different man named Mr. Edward Hyde. Now, Dr. Jekyll himself was a very nice, compassionate, and even-tempered man. On the other hand, the person he turned into, Mr. Hyde, was a harsh, cruel, cold-blooded killer. The story revolves then around the ensuing battle between the two different characters, Jekyll and Hyde, fighting for sole control of one body. Now, someone once asked Robert Louis Stevenson, where did you get your inspiration for these characters? And Stevenson, who was raised in a strict Presbyterian home, replied, I looked inside myself. I find there's always a struggle with the beast that lives within me. Now, while Stevenson's story of Jekyll and Hyde is, of course, fiction, the foundational truth upon which Stevenson built it from is very, very real. The struggle with the beast within. For like Stevenson, like me, like the Apostle Paul, there is a Jekyll and Hyde within each one of us. One that battles for control of but one body. For in Christ, your new spirit, like, like Dr. Jekyll, is, is one that desires the good things. It desires nothing more than to follow the Lord wholeheartedly, to obey him unreservedly. But then there's your old flesh, Mr. Hyde, who keeps trying to rear his ugly head and try to trip you up and drag you down. And sometimes in this battle, it can feel like for every step forward, you take two steps back. And this can leave you feeling frustrated, discouraged, and even at times downright defeated. And so, if it's any encouragement to you today whatsoever, know that you're not alone. 
in this battle. You're not alone. You're not the only one who feels that way. Even the great apostle Paul himself wrestled with this exact thing, as we shall soon see here in Romans chapter 7. But here, Paul, who begins actually a personal testimony of sorts, rather than beginning by immediately telling us how to have victory, how to, how to defeat the beast within, how to put Mr. Hyde down, Paul instead begins by describing how we struggle against sin and lose. He wants to set the tone for reality. This is where life is actually at, and he includes himself in this struggle. Now, of course, some of you are saying, well, I don't need any tips or lessons on how to struggle against sin and lose. That's, that's my day-to-day. Well, here's the thing. If it is your day-to-day, if struggling against sin and losing is the common theme in your life, yeah, you maybe don't need to be told how to do it, but you need to be told why it keeps happening. Because until you understand the why, how to come to victory is utterly impossible. And so Paul begins with the why we keep struggling against sin and losing. We need to understand this. And Paul understood it very, very well indeed. Now to set the context for Romans 7, we must take note that it is a direct continuation of the theme from chapter 6 of law, license, and liberty. In fact, he's been establishing this theme all the way back to Romans chapter 4 and carrying it through now into the beginning of Romans chapter 7. Now, of course, every last Christian who's ever lived, every last one, wished that the moment they placed their faith in Jesus Christ to save them. They wished that at that very moment they would be done with sin forever and never ever sin again in their entire lives. In fact, some of us naively believe that that's exactly what would happen when we came to faith. However, if you've been a Christian for any length of time whatsoever, you know from experience it doesn't work that way. Because you see, after we come to faith in Christ, we're saved. We're justified, meaning we're separated from the penalty of sin. Every last follower of Christ then enters into a new phase, a lifelong process of being sanctified. Sanctified, which is being removed from the practice of sin and transformed into the image of Christ. Now, I'll emphasize again that this sanctification is a lifelong process. Our sanctification will not be complete until that great day when we will stand fully glorified in the radiant presence of Christ. That day is coming, my friends. Take hope in that. Set your eyes on that day. It's coming, but it is not yet. And though we are given a new nature, the moment we are saved, and though we are given a new master, a better master than the old tyrant of sin, So long as we still live in this world, every last Christian, I don't care who you are, every last one of us still has the devil, the world, and our own flesh to contend with. And who, just like Mr. Hyde, still lurks in the shadows looking for any opportunity to rear his ugly head and to keep us down and to try to keep us defeated from living the good life. Now, I'll ask the question, just how, just how does Satan and our flesh keep tripping us up so successfully and so repeatedly? 
Just how does it do it? Well, here in Romans 7, Paul continues to explain the two equal yet opposite traps that Christians can keep falling into when dealing with sin in their lives. Much like two ditches on opposite sides of a road, it doesn't really matter much which ditch you fall into because the end result is the same. You're deceived and defeated. So there's, there's the road, the straight path, the straight and narrow way, walking with Christ in the middle. That's the road. That's where you want to be. But on one hand, you've got one ditch, and on the other hand, you've got another ditch. And so Paul goes on to describe these two. Two traps. The first one, which he spends most of the time on in this passage, is legalism. Legalism. That is the first ditch. The second ditch, which he also touches on, not quite as in-depth, is license. So legalism and license. Now we're going to start with Trap number one, legalism. Paul unequivocally states that the legalist is in bondage to the law. That is, the legalist has been deceived into believing that his continuing right relationship to God still depends somehow upon his obedience to the old law. Now, this person, such a person, might still say that Yes, they have been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, apart from the works of the law. But then in the very next breath, they'll say something like, but now the rest is up to me. I have to try really, really hard to keep the law. And I'll do my best. Now, when you hear someone say that, what they have fallen into is this first ditch of legalism. It's a performance trap. It's this mindset that the better I perform, the better I'll be. And one of the lessons we see in the Old Testament over and over is that the laws and commands of God were not primarily given to show people what to do for him, but rather to show the people how hopeless and helpless they were apart from him. Because you see... God knew they could never keep the whole law to the letter. And as they failed, that should have exposed to them just how flawed they were and thrown themselves on God's mercy and his grace and to call out for his help. But somehow that got lost in translation. And the people of Israel arrogantly believed that somehow they could keep the whole law of God. And so they tried really, really, really hard to do that. And so for centuries... They, they set about to obey all the rules and regulations. They made more rules and regulations in order to keep the first rules and regulations until the, the point where they had hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of man-made rules and regulations placed on top of the ones that God had already given them. But the more they went into this trap of legalism, the further away from the heart of God they, they went. It didn't get them closer to God, it got them further away from God. It did not free them from sin, but in fact, it bound them to sin. And the law showed them that the way to righteousness, it showed them, it didn't show them the way to righteousness, but rather showed them their own wickedness. But it was powerless to save them. But all the while, Israel kept saying, Every time they failed, I'll try harder and I'll do better. I'll try harder and I'll do better. Have you ever said that before? 
You know, I, I, yeah, I failed, but you know what? I'm going to try really hard this time, and I'm going to do better. Well, Christians keep doing the exact same thing as ancient Israel. And so, because we, we want to please God, we want to fight Satan, we want to live holy lives, we think that we'll succeed in that by, like Israel, knowing the rules better, and then trying really, really hard to obey them. But then, inevitably, the day will come where you get out of the wrong side of the bed. And before you know it, you've already barked at your kid, you've been rude to your wife, you've kicked the cat, and you haven't even finished breakfast yet. Have you ever had days like that, or is it just me? Now, here in Romans chapter 7, Paul addresses the question, is the believer still under the law? So, in other words, After having been saved by grace, do we now live this out by going back to the law and trying really hard to obey it? Is that what the Christian life is? Well, Paul answers that question in verses 1 to 4 by using the analogy of marriage. He explains that so long as a woman is married to her husband, she is bound by the law to remain faithful to him as long as he lives. So, in this way... If, while her husband is yet alive, she goes and marries another man, she is now committing adultery. However, if her husband were to die, and then she were to go and marry another man, she would not be committing adultery because she has been fully released from the law and is free to remarry and not be an adulteress. And so, Paul, using this analogy, in verse 4, he concludes it like this. So, my brothers, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit to God. So, in other words, Paul is saying that the law was like an inflexible and demanding husband. And we were married to him. We were married to the law. But so long as the law yet lived, we were not free to leave him for another. The only way to be released is for one of us to die. And guess what? The law can live for a really, really long time, longer than any human lifespan. So it's always the people who die first, never free to remarry to another. The only way to be released is for one of us to die. So what to do? Well, God did something entirely unexpected and radical. For rather than having the law die, he had us die with Christ. And so when Christ died on the cross, we died on the cross with him. When he went in the grave, we went in the grave with him. When he rose from the grave, we rose from the grave with him. So in this way, our marriage certificate to our old husband, the law, has been legally nullified. For we, the bride, are now marked down as deceased. The contract is now null and void. So now we are free to enter into a new marriage covenant with Christ as our husband. And we, as his church, we become his bride. And so in this sense, if the law comes calling again, saying, hey, you still belong to me. You've got to come my way one more time. You still have to to do this and and don't do that and, and go here and don't go there. 
Well, if the law comes calling again, that that old husband, well, then we can simply let Jesus answer the door and allow him to tell the law to take a hike. We don't belong to you anymore. We have no legal obligation to the law whatsoever. We have died with Christ. We are now together identified with Christ in every way. But to this now, the legalist will naturally say in protest, but without the law, what will keep the bride faithful to her new husband? And without the law telling her what to do and and to not do, then what will keep her in line? Well, the answer is equally parts profound, yet simple. It's love. Love makes the difference. Love, true love, agape love, triumphs over the law in every single way. For just as it is love and not the law that establishes and sustains a flourishing marriage, so it is love and not the law that establishes and sustains a flourishing relationship with Jesus Christ. If, if, my friend, if you're walking with Christ today with this heavy yoke of the law on your shoulders telling you, do this, don't do that, do this, don't do that, do this, don't do that. If that's what your Christian life is, my friends, you've gone back to the old husband. That's not the walk with Christ that Jesus wants for you. He he wants a relationship of love where you are walking with him in faithful obedience, not because you have to, but because out of a love relationship you desire to, you want to please your new husband. That's what this is all about. More love, not law. That is the answer. In John 14, verse 15, Jesus spelled it out. He said, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Simple, right? If you love me. He didn't say, If, you'll, if you fear me, if you know the law well enough, if, if you love me, you will obey. That's it, if you love me. So I know this it seems so simple, right? But think about it. It's, it's, it's my love for my wife that motiv- motivates me to serve her, to care for her, to meet her needs. And in the same way, it is, it is my love for the Lord Jesus that motivates me to, to serve him, to love him, to do things that will please him. And no, of course, I don't do either of those things perfectly with my wife or with Christ, not even close. But here's the things, friends, because of God and his work in my life, I desire to. That is what motivates me. It is love, not the law. We don't go back to legalism to try to now walk on the road with Christ. That's not what this is. That is a trap. We have died to it. It is done and finished. Fill it in. Don't go back there. Don't go back. Because you see, Jesus will take nothing of our worship or service or obedience by force. Though he could, he won't. But instead, Jesus will only receive what we give to him willingly from a heart captured by his love and freed from the law. And Paul concludes this marriage analogy in verse 6. But now by dying to what once bound us, that is the law, by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit 
and not in the old way of the written code. There's an ancient dialogue taken from the second century between a student and his very legalistic teacher. The student says, I am in earnest about forsaking the world and following Christ, but I am puzzled about worldly things. What is it I must forsake? To which the teacher replied, Colored clothing, for one thing. Get rid of everything in your wardrobe that is not white. Stop sleeping on soft pillows. Sell your musical instruments and don't eat any more white bread. You cannot, if you are sincere about obeying Christ, take warm baths or shave your beard. To shave is to lie against him who created us, to attempt to approve upon his work. Now, Elizabeth Elliot once commented on this dialogue, saying, Does the teacher's answer sound absurd? Well, it is the answer given in the most celebrated Christian schools of the second century. Is it possible that the rules that have been adopted by many 20th century Christians will sound as absurd to earnest followers of Christ in just a few years? And to Elizabeth Elliot's comment, I would add my own. Is it possible that in the 21st century we are doing things just the same? You see, the old way of the written code is as persistent as it is deceitful. But it just, just as it had no power to justify us, the law has no power to sanctify us. And that is why Paul states, So, my brothers, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another. And that is Christ. So now that we've examined the first ditch, the first trap of legalism on this side of the road, we now cross the road to examine the ditch on the other side, the second trap, license. Now you'll recall from last week that simply because we are no longer under the law but under grace, that does not give us a license to sin. So now in verses 7 to 12, Paul addresses the same subject again but from a slightly different angle. In Christian doctrine, the fancy term for license is antinomian. Antinomian. It's a Greek word literally translated as antinomian, against law. So antinomian, against law. So there was a sect of Christians that became known in Paul's day as antinomians or libertines. They completely rejected the law, which was, again, the right thing to do, However, they went too far, and rather coming into this relationship, walking with Christ in obedience, they went all the way across from one error, they crossed the road into another error. Because in rejecting the law, they went too far. And they viewed it as no longer being applicable and necessary in any way, shape, or form, and even went so far as to blame the law itself as the cause of mankind's moral and spiritual problems. In other words, they argued if we just get rid of the law, we'll get rid of all of man's sinful tendencies. So, in the one ditch, you have the legalist who fears the law and is in bondage to it. And in the other, you have the the antinomian who loathes the law and blames it for all of mankind's problems. Now Paul addresses this trap in verse 7. He asks, What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. Indeed, I would not have known what sin was except through the law. 
So, you see, the law itself is not our problem. It's simply the instrument whereby our root problem is revealed, and that is sin. The law reveals sin. That is what it is an expert in. Take, for example, the MRI machine at a hospital. It's an incredible machine that can find things wrong inside of you that otherwise you would never know. But now, if the MRI finds a disease inside of you, is the MRI itself to blame for the disease being there? Of course not. It simply reveals the disease that's already present. Well, it's the same with the law. The law doesn't create our sinful condition. It simply reveals what's already there. Furthermore, while the MRI can show you what's wrong, it has no further power to fix what's wrong. Doctors have to look at other solutions. All the MRI can do is reveal the problem. It can't fix the problem. All the law can do is reveal our problem. It can't fix our problem. It can't eliminate or remove our sin. It shows what godliness looks like, but it cannot make us godly. In fact, trying harder and harder on your own to obey the law of God will not produce less sin in your life. It will, in fact, produce more. Here's the great irony of the law. The harder you try to obey it, the more sin it will produce in your life. Does that seem contradictory? Well, here's how it works. Paul explains. In the second half of verse 7 and into verse 8, he says this. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had said, do not covet. But sin seized the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of covetous desire. For apart from law, sin is dead. Okay, so here's how this works. When I was a young boy, growing up on the farm, there was one often repeated rule. And that was, don't play down by the dugout. Now, on our farm, there's, there's an old dugout we, for, you know, many years gone by that was used for cattle. It wasn't used for that anymore. But still, plenty deep enough to drown anyone, especially a young boy who doesn't really even know how to swim. So many times I would hear that same refrain from my parents, don't go down by the dugout. Why did my parents make that rule? Well, because, of course, they knew that a dugout is a very dangerous place and many a child has drowned in one. In fact, in that very same dugout, one of our old dogs did drown in it after falling through the ice. So the danger was very real. My, my parents' rule made every sense in the world, don't play down by the dugout. But now, where do you suppose that I would want to go and play every chance I got? <laughs> That's right. You guessed it. Down by the dugout. So was the rule wrong? No, the rule was not wrong. I was. I was. Verse 10. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring me life actually brought death. You see how the, the bait and switch? My parents' rule was intended to save me, to, to preserve my life, and yet my, my sinful tendency heard, don't do it, and it said, do it. And it lured me even closer to what was dangerous that my parents were trying to save me from. And thanks to the Lord for guardian angels, I didn't drown in that dugout, but there were plenty of opportunities. Sorry, Mom. <laughs> you see, sin seizes the opportunity afforded by the commandment, 
and it deceived me, Paul says. Years ago, one of the first high-rise hotels to open in Galveston, Texas, it sat directly above the Gulf of Mexico, right up against it. And it was so close to the water that the hotel staff was worried that people would want to drop their fishing lines down into the water from the balconies up in their rooms. And, of course, glass windows, high winds, and heavy lead sinkers just seemed like a recipe for trouble. They wanted to avoid it. And so management thought they would be proactive and place a sign in each of the hotel rooms that said, right along the balcony, absolutely no fishing from the balcony. Problem solved, right? They had fixed the problem before it was even a problem. Well, what do you think happened next? Of course, right out of the gate, the hotel opened and people constantly were trying to fish from their balcony. And yes, damage was being done. Finally, the hotel management realized their error. And you know how they fixed it? They simply removed all the signs from the guest rooms. Problem solved. No one ever fished from a balcony ever again. And they didn't even have to tell them not to. Do you see just how deceptive sin is and how easily it can use the law to tempt us to do something that we hadn't even thought of before? Again, it's not that the no fishing sign is the problem. It's the, it's the flesh. It's Mr. Hyde lurking within us, looking for an opportunity to pounce. That's the problem. And in verse 12, Paul says, So then, the law is holy and the commandment is holy, righteous and good. Then in verse 14, we know that the law is spiritual, but here's the problem. I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. So this stands now as a strong rebuttal to both the legalist and to the antinomian. And so the key to living the victorious life in Christ is not found in the first ditch. It's not not achieved by trying really, really hard to follow the law. Nor is it found in the second ditch of just wholesale rejecting the law as useless or irrelevant. Because the law isn't the problem. Sin is the problem. It's us. So what then is the key? What is, what is the good and straight road that we can walk on? How, how can we walk that road with Christ? Well, the key is found back in verse 6. Paul writes, But now, by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. The new way of the Spirit. The new way of the Spirit. This is the key. It is none other than the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, also referred to as the Spirit of Christ, the one who brings the presence of Christ into our hearts and lives. He is the key to living the fruitful life, walking the straight and narrow road with Christ. In John 17, verses 15 to 17, Jesus prayed this for us. Listen. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. So here Jesus reveals that so long as we are in this world, there is an ongoing battle over us between the evil one who is Satan, who is seeking to corrupt us, And God, who is seeking 
to save us and to sanctify us. Satan seeks to corrupt us through his lies, whereas God seeks to sanctify us by the truth. And what is the truth? Your word is truth, Jesus said. Your word is truth. In Ephesians 6, Paul described it as the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. This is all talking about the Bible. And that's why every week we dive into the word. We get into this word. We immerse ourselves in the truth of it. Week after week, we feed on it because it is in this truth, the sword of the Spirit. It is in here that the sanctifying power of God is unleashed in our lives through the work of the Spirit. Because it's, it's not me, it's the Spirit who is going to reveal the deep truths of God's Word to first your mind and then have them sink into your heart in a transformative way. Increasing your love for the Lord. Because remember, the greatest commandment is not work harder, try better. The greatest commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That is the greatest commandment. That is the power that God gives to us to live this new life, not according to the old law, but according to the Spirit who brings life and liberty in the truest and fullest sense, motivated not by fear, but by love. Love for our Lord. And the Spirit works this out in our lives. And so now, ever since Pentecost Sunday, remember, the Spirit has not come to just visit our lives and then leave. The Spirit has come to indwell us, to permanently reside and empower us, to not only struggle against sin and keep losing over and over again. No, He has come to help us struggle against sin and begin to have victory and to keep us arm-in-arm arm on the road with Jesus. Not motivated by law or by license, but by love for our new master, husband, savior, and Lord. For truly, we love him because he first loved us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, hear our prayer. More love for you. This is what we need. It's not more rules. It's not more commands. It's not more uh, clever arguments to say why sin isn't sin. No, it's, it's more love. That we would love you as you deserve to be loved. As, as we ought to love you, Lord. Not because we have this, this rule telling us we have to, but because you have loved us so well. Why would we not love you in return? with our whole heart, with our whole mind, with all of our strength, with all that is within us. Lord, more love. And we pray that out of this love, and by the sword of the Spirit, the indwelling power of your Holy Spirit working within us, Lord, would you begin to grant us, Lord, day by day, that as we struggle against the flesh, and as the enemy still lurks, day by day, give us victory after victory. And that, Lord, thank you that where we have slipped into one error into another, that there is grace, not to remain there, but grace to be freed from it once more, to brought back up onto the straight and narrow road, walking with you, our Lord and Savior. And so, Lord, I pray for anyone who has been convicted by these words today. Would you give them the grace and the strength 
to repent where they need to repent and to recommit to walking with you in a relationship of love day by day and hour by hour. We pray these things in your name, Lord Jesus. We confess our love for you once more and we ask for more. In Jesus' name, amen. Go now with this benediction. Now may God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Well, may God bless you richly, and Lord willing, I will see some of you in the flesh right here in our church parking lot next Sunday. Until then, have a very good week. Walk with the Lord and know that he walks with you. Take care.